Hello, lab experts. Welcome to the Rock Diagnostics podcast, the podcast where we discuss everything medical laboratory science in Africa and around the world. Today, we're going to be doing part two of our interview with David Maglassen. The last time we talked about Nurse Janine Jones, we talked about the dead shift, we talked about how he was able to help investigators determine how she was killing children in hospitals in Texas. Today we'll try and go into some slightly more details, ask some questions about the case, ask some questions about how he got to the conclusions that he did, and we'll also talk a little bit about medical overdoses and possibly what are some of the um, solutions that could be put in place to help reduce um, those errors in the medical field. So without much further ado, let's talk MedLab. We have with us David McLassen, medical laboratory scientist, semi-retired with 50 years of experience. Uh, so David, uh, any opening words? Yes, sir. Um, Good to be back. It was a very good experience last time. I was pleased that, uh, in fact, I just checked the uh, my LinkedIn website, and we got over uh, we got 500 hits exactly. Uh, just exactly. Ago, on there. And so uh, that's very. Uh, uh, I was very glad to see that uh, um, uh, that people had an interest in uh, what we had to say about last time. Um, yeah. yeah. We got kind of cut off in the middle. And I know mm -hmm. that you guys had some questions that you wanted to ask. So, um, yeah. you know, you want to take those first before we start discussing the case further? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of interest from what we saw. Uh, when discussing the case, uh, eventually, uh, there was a part of the interview wherein you talked about investigations into medical personnel, like extra investigations. Did that actually happen? Yes. Um, what? Yeah, let me run down a, a brief scenario on some things that happened and what happened to some of the people uh, uh, in the case. You know, we talked about uh, how some of the nurses were starting to suspect Janine and they would go to their supervisors uh, to uh, uh, give their concerns and they were being ignored. For example, um, one of the uh, nurses started, uh, her name was uh, Suzanne Maldonado. Now this is in the book, uh, The Death Shift, uh, as well as another book uh, called Deadly Medicine. And uh, she started taking, uh, getting evidence. She proved the kids were, denied, were dying on Janine's watch. She gave the evidence to uh, nursing supervisor, uh, Pat Belko, and the doctor who was supervising the um, um, ICU, Dr. Robotham. And Robotham started an investigation. He was worried about heparin, and he took concerns to his boss, Dr. Franks, who basically um, the hospital nursing supervisors and the physicians the hospital administrator kind of blew them off, um, mm. and uh, it was getting uh, to be a little bit uh, bad. Uh, one case, another um, case that um, uh, I had worked up for um, the heparin um, uh, was a child who uh, we found that Jones gave, Jones gave uh, 333 times the dose to clear a line on a child. Bam, 2,000 unit per ml, 10 mls ran to an IV line. And uh, that caused him to have, start having these mysterious bleedings. The first child that we worked up for, we found the heparin, had had four incidences of unexplained bleedings, and uh, until that we were able to isolate that it was heparin. 
I know uh, Dr. Cipriani, who you and I were talking about earlier, uh, caught this nurse pushing glucose on a child that didn't need it without getting any lab tests. Mm-hmm. And um, she, um, uh, we found uh, that was the one where uh, the glucose level was over 500. Yeah. And, you know, definitely a critical value on, on anybody, much less a small child. The hospital administrator had this vision. He wanted to wind up being Surgeon General of the United States, and he uh, just ignored basically what was going on. The assistant administrator who wound up being in charge when we went to trial and everything, a person I knew very well, uh, uh, Mr. John Guest, really was disturbed about all these things and started asking questions of uh, other personnel. And he said uh, he discussed with Dr. Robotham about control of the problem. And also, uh, there were um, clerks who were reporting that supplies were missing, bottles of heparin, syringes, gauze, things that should have been there that weren't there. Um, A a nurse uh, named Pat Alberti uh, suggested, suspected Jones and made a point to take care of Jones's patients when she wasn't there to make sure that nothing happened about it. She complained endlessly about uh, the issue of malpractice going on, but basically told to be quiet about it, and that it was all misunderstandings. And uh, finally, uh, other nursing personnel were threatening to call a local uh, uh, newspaper columnist about the problem. And in fact, it was so bad that a couple of the nurses were so distressed about it, they actually sought psychiatric help because they were so disturbed nobody was paying attention to it. I talked to the last time about and, one of the patients uh, had an elevated dilantin level, and um, it went from uh, uh, about 14 up to about 60. And my techs picked that up immediately, did the critical value checks, phoned it in, and uh, nobody could figure out why, because that child wasn't getting dilantin. Yeah. Later, How, I think I told one question. That. Yeah. How were they able to pick up on the dilantin levels? Like, were there specific tests asked, or what happened exactly? Right. They, they asked for a test be, uh, on the child because they could not explain uh, the uh, seizures that were happening. And they said, well, you know, well, the child is supposed to be getting some kind of seizure medication, but they weren't really sure what. So they went ahead and ordered the dilantin level. And, uh, and then that's when they found out that the, the uh, levels were now were He'd been given a small dose earlier to start him. But uh, he wasn't responding like he was supposed to. And uh, the level went from, uh, I think, about 14, and it was at 60 when we detected in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the laboratory uh, where we were still have this policy. You make your dilution. You have somebody, uh, you know, you, you calculate out, you know, um, like if you've made a one to four dilution, you check your work. What comes out, say if it comes out 14, then you would, uh, or 15, take it times four, it would be 60. You have somebody check your calculation. Then you phone it in to the floor. You tell the floor, this is our value. Who am I talking to? The time you put it in, you put all that in the computer. And uh, so, interestingly enough, that was all still a part of the medical record. Uh, when I looked over this stuff back uh, last year, um, uh, it was all, like I said, it was still part of the medical records and I recognized the names on them. I think I told you the fellow who found that one is now an oral surgeon. Um, uh, his, his father was actually a pathologist 
And uh, another interesting thing about George, he was a member of the modern pentathlon team that uh, in the Olympics. So he was quite a well-rounded individual. Um, one of the other uh, techs that found a, uh, a drastically elevated glucose also is now Dr. Peter Ramirez, who is a uh, clinical pathologist who went from being a laboratorian, uh, you know, went back to medical school and stuff. So I had really good people working with me on yeah. these shifts. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, most of these guys were in school doing something, and that's why they were working part-time with me on these uh, three to 11 shifts, uh, picking this stuff up. But um, the, like I said, the boy who's now, oh gosh, 36 years old, who I found the original um, um, issue with on um, uh, heparin with the uh, multiple bleeding episodes, he is now a 36-year-old man. Yeah. He claims he can still see the spot on his arm where Janine injected me. And uh, I, I said, well, you know, uh, it may or may not be true, but he believes it. He's alive. He's happy that we were able to find it. What was interesting, though, was one of the uh, um, uh, the the physician that had the child that was bleeding took him out of the ICU, and all his problems resolved within five days once they got him away from that nurse. Yeah. Now, the nurse administrator said, oh, the bottles were confused with amoxicillin. So, you know, they, but they were different labels and different size bottles, but that was the excuse she gave. Everybody just seemed to want to cover it up. And I think I mentioned last time that the uh, lawyers with the hospital district were um, uh, consulted about this, and they just basically said, well, you know, if we blame her, we can have a lawsuit and, you know, uh, stuff, and we don't have definite proof, even though they had a mountain of it. Uh, like I said, CDC was eventually called in on it to evaluate this problem. Uh, but what the way they got around it was they took all of the uh, LVNs out of the ICU and only RNs could um, um, uh, work there. So that was the way they saw it. What the, com the uh, committee was formed and what they uh, discussed was uh, they dismissed the notion that one nurse was killing the kids. They looked at the PDICU as a whole problem, so they overhauled the whole unit, like I said. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Robotman took the hit. He was let go. The nursing supervisors covered up saying enough was not documented, so they couldn't fire anyone. And um, they were afraid that if they just fired her, she would have a lawsuit. And actually, Janine left a death threat message for uh, uh, Susanna Maldonado, the nurse who started it all. And it was turned over to nursing, nursing administration. They did nothing after saying they would handle the matter internally. Now, the hospital didn't pass this information on to prospective employers because they were still afraid that she would be suing them. Uh, and so they gave her a warm endorsement, and she went with Dr. Uh, uh, Kathy Holland up to Kerrville, Texas, yeah. and the death started again. Mm -hmm. Up there, she used succinylcholine, which is the purified equivalent of curare. Um, curare is a very old drug. Uh, indigenous people in South America actually used to put it on their uh, darts, and poison darts, to bring down game with it. In medicine, it's used as, as a paralytic, especially of the uh, 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 respiratory system when they're uh, intubating somebody who's fighting the, um, the you know, the intubation, especially children. So uh, that way they could, uh, um, so they can uh, intubate them easy without tearing up the uh, uh, path, uh, the uh, uh, airway. Yeah. So up there, 
is when she got, like I said, really creative and the deaths started again. Now, this is after 47 suspected deaths in San Antonio. This uh, uh, former resident, Dr. Holland, who had gotten a good endorsement from the hospital on Janine, just wasn't aware of what was going on. So um, uh, what we had then was a situation, you had a nurse that had already been uh, involved in, in all these deaths, went to another town, another clinic, and other hospitals were involved up there. And, uh, you know, had the problem starting all over again. Yeah. The investigation by the uh, DA office from uh, February of 83 to October of 84, what they did, they uh, were thinking about exhuming 23 bodies, and uh, two were exhumed, and uh, they uh, took tissues from them, and they had tissue blocks from uh, samples that were taken before, and um, they started looking at them, and this fellow developed this technique for uh, uh, detecting succinylcholine and paraffin blocks from histo stuff. Uh, in the Bear County investigation, the drugs that were uh, suspected were dilantin, heparin, digoxin, and also succinylcholine here. Um, they looked at, uh, you know, we, we talked earlier about uh, the ch children that uh, um, uh, Joshua Sawyer was the one where we had the unexplained Dilantin, Rolando Santos. And these are all um, names that have been uh, put in the media. They've been uh, um, on TV. They've been in multiple books. So I'm not uh, conveying anyone's private information uh, on this because it's already been vetted numerous times in open court, everything like that. So. Um, but it was, uh, it was very interesting. She, uh, she was first tried up in uh, Kerrville, Texas, um, for, uh, the death of one, uh, 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 Patty McClellan. And, um, that was the one where they got her on the succinylcholine. She got a life sentence up there. Yeah. And then, uh, they brought her back to San Antonio and tried her on the heparin overdose. And what they got her for here was for criminal abuse of a child and they gave her 60 years. The judge in San Antonio, the judges decided to have the um, um, census served concurrently, which if they just said they had to be done consecutively, she wouldn't have had the problem of possibly getting out. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at that time, I think I mentioned last time, Texas had these very yes. bizarre sentencing laws that gave two for one, you know, if you had a, two, a good day, you, you you know, you got one day off in the sentence. And that's why she was going to get out after about 35 years, which was in 2019. And uh, so it uh, it became a problem. And, and the the uproar in the community of people that were still around, both by medical personnel and by uh, people who were still, you know, who had lost children or like uh, uh, Mr. Santos, who was still alive, they're going, uh-uh, we want her tried again. So they're going to try her on four other cases. Now, the drug succinylcholine, uh, actually, uh, uh, there were a couple of books written, one by a very famous author named John D. McDonald, who normally wrote fiction, but he wrote a uh, book about uh, called uh, No Deadly Drug in, back in 1968 about a doctor who... Uh, whose wife died unexpectedly, and they never could under, uh, explain what's happening. Succinylcholine disappears very rapidly in, in the detection system. And uh, this guy uh, uh, killed his wife. His name was Dr. Carl 
Coppolino, uh, C-O-P-P-O-L-I-N-O. He can be looked up. His first initials were C-A, and his last name was Coppolino. And uh, in uh, 1980, a book was written about him also called The Crime That Never Was. Not only did he kill um, her, his wife, he then killed his uh, uh, lover's husband by injecting him with succinylcholine. And uh, so, you know, uh, he, he had, in fact, um, you remember the O.J. Simpson murder case? Yeah. Okay, you know, big deal, you know, several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his lawyers, F. Lee Bailey, made his name defending Coppolino on these charges. Yeah, uh, that was just something I just remembered. Uh, but um, what they uh, finally did on him, they did detect in the brain tissue by a New York toxicology lab of this victim uh, later in 1980 uh, was uh, succinyl in the uh, brain tissue by uh, doing it in the paraffin section. So that's what they went after in the uh, McClellan case up in Kerrville. And uh, it was uh, a couple of PhDs, uh, readers and uh, Olmsted from uh, um I think these, one of them was from uh, uh, Sweden and the other one's from the United States. They uh, looked back on him and uh, looked back on the tissues and were able to uh, reproduce that work. And I think that they found it in, um, yeah, they did it in uh, thigh muscle, uh, both the left and right thigh. They found it in gallbladder tissue and in the liver, in formal and fixed tissue. Now, this isn't the first time, you know, I mean, there's been all medical personnel in particular, nurses seem to be the ones that uh, uh, are the most prolific when it comes to uh, hurting patients. Don't know why, I guess it's just because they are the ones that have the most contact. Yeah. But there was another case of uh, a succinyl uh, homicide uh, by a um, one they called the angel of, another one they called the angel of death. His name is Efren Saldivar back in, um, uh, hospitals in Glendale, California, in 89 uh, through 1997, he killed maybe between 40 and 50 patients by using succinylcholine and something called ancuronium, which it was detected in uh, six of the exhumed cases. Yeah. Ancuronium is something they use in uh, lethal injections to uh, uh, kill uh, people in capital murder cases to, to execute them. So, so in the case of uh, the the angel of death, he was using succinylcholine. Now, one thing I, with uh, Janine, seems she used lots of different things, like glucose, calcium, dilantin, succinyl. She, she, she liked to create situations where she could get involved and correct the situation because she knew what was going on. All right. Sometimes she went too far. You know, sometimes she went too far on purpose. Other times she was, uh, like I think I mentioned last time, Dr. Debbie Rash, who I became very close to over the years. Uh, In fact, she took care of one of my children. I think I mentioned when the last time when one of my children were in that PDICU later, uh, she took care of him for a severe upper respiratory issue. And, um, uh, but uh, she caught her injecting calcium, which would have induced a seizure in this kid. And the kid, you know, the calcium wasn't on the formulary for this child. Dr. Uh, uh, Cipriani caught her injecting uh, glucose uh, at a time. And then when the child got the uh, overdose of dilantin, that was done with a bolus of glucose on top of it. So, um, you know, you got a lot of uh, issues there. The Did she ever try to um, 
do anything to adults too, or was it only children? She came to that hospital after abusing a patient, uh, an adult patient in a uh, another system, uh, another hospital system. Uh, it was the Methodist system. Now it's uh, it's still called Methodist here locally, but I think it's uh, part of HCA in the United States Hospital Corporation of America. Um, so, you know, there's always been this problem with her in various places, uh, and it just seems to get get swept under the rug. In Kerrville, they took it very seriously. That's a small town in comparison to San Antonio, probably about 40,000 people, but they have a, VA, a large VA hospital there, and they have Sid Peterson Hospital, which is a very well-respected mid-sized hospital in the area, and it's one that takes care of patients in about a 50-mile radius. So the... Uh, hospital committee up there started telling Dr. Holland, you got a lot of kids dying out of your clinic and stuff. And she goes, yeah, well, I'm taking the sickest kids on, you know, not realizing that she had this angel of death also working for her. So um, that's when uh, the suspicion started up there again. Then that got back to San Antonio and the DAs in both places started conferring back and forth with one another. And that's what you know, helped uh, uh, bring her to the two trials that they did. Um, you know, yeah. And they actually, uh, on the suctional uh, homicide, um, I've got a quote here. This was an expert witness in the uh, Coppolino case that I just mentioned, the one that killed his wife and then uh, his lover's husband. It's, uh, the person said, if you want to kill a person, get away with it. This is really a good drug to use. Uh, when he was talking about the suctional homicides. And uh, so uh, that kind of, uh, you know, made him really taking a good look at it. The key thing is, in all these cases, the medical lab was involved. You had personnel there that were able to recognize what the issues were. Yeah. It gave the physician the best numbers to go back and treat the patients with. Unfortunately, we had this evil presence working outside of us that were uh, causing all the problems. But one, think about this, one LVN almost crashed two hospital systems, caused untold damage to as many, they think, as possibly 60 families and uh, innocent children. And, it, you know, it's just unfathomable to be how this happened. But the fact that personnel were in place and uh, back, I don't know if you can see this book. It's a little bit old here. Uh, yeah. It's called The Death Shift. Mm -hmm. That's a picture of Janine on the front. And mm -hmm. it's written by uh, 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 Peter Elkind. Okay. You can look him up online. And he actually does a, a, a podcast himself. And I talked uh -huh. to him uh, last year uh, about this because one of the things – I've had to deal with the press uh, on many occasions, and um, they rarely ever get it 100% right. Um, and, I, but, uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, my specialty, of course, is blood coagulation, but I was working with uh, brown recluse spider venom. Brown recluse spiders are endemic to the Southwest and warm, dry regions down into Mexico and actually into Central America. It's uh, their genus and, and species name is Loxacellus reclusa. 
and it means you know uh, they they hide they they hide in like uh, abandoned wood piles and old sheds and attics. God help him, a friend of mine uh, that I was in the army with, he taught hematology and I was in microbiology at the time, uh, Bill Fetter, who became a neuropsychologist, in fact, worked with astronauts at the NASA Space Center. When he moved into a new house, he saw a little cobweb in the corner of a, uh, of a room and he just happened to nudge it with his bare toe. A brown recluse spider bit him. He didn't even feel the bite. He wound up losing his entire leg. Yeah, it causes a tremendous necrotizing fasciitis, and also the bite is kind of dirty, so it also uh, can uh, get a, a MRSA infection, a MRSA staph infection. And um, well, what I had done was I found that the um, I'd read a, a book, and I had a, a physician working with me uh, who was a resident at the time, who was also had a PhD in toxicology, Dr. James Babcock. He comes up to me and he says, "Hey, I've got this." Um, uh, spider venom that does some weird things when you put it in plasma. You want to play with it? And I said, sure. And he had written a paper saying that um, uh, it reduced coagulation factor eight and nines in human plasma when it was in vitro. And uh, I said, oh, okay, let's look at it. So I verified that. But I also looked at all the coagulation factors, two through 12. And, and the, of course, uh, factors two, uh, five, uh, seven, and uh, ten. Also, ten can be uh, assayed by a PT or a PTT. And um, the um, eight, nine, eleven, and twelve, of course, are uh, uh, the intrinsic uh, uh, pathway. Those can be are assayed usually by a PTT. This is the one-stage coagulation factor assays. But what I found was, Babcock was right. It reduced them. But when you diluted it out, it looked like a lupus anticoagulant and corrected. Now, this was very unreal. And I'm going, wow. Now, why doesn't it do that on the extrinsic pathway ones, the two, five, and the seven? And the 10, if you did it by a PT method, which is why you normally do it, but you can do a 10 by a PTT method. And uh, what it did on all of the extrinsic ones, or rather, it, it did not uh, uh, cause this dilution, it did not have this decreasing of the factors at all. They stayed the same, but on the intrinsic phase, they reduced. Like when you went from one to 10, 20, it, it went down, it decreased. When you went out to 40 and 80, it started coming back up and normalizing. Right. And what, what's the difference in that? You know what the difference is? The reagent. PT reagent has about 200 times more phospholipid in it than the uh, PTT reagent. So it overcame the lupus anticoagulant effect that occurs. And that's one way that you can pick up the term of lupus anticoagulant. I said, hey, you know what we've got here? We've got a control plasma. And uh, so I named it something called arachnase. And, uh, you know, after arachnids, and uh, so that's what we called it. And uh, we had some fun with that. The problem was I couldn't make a recombinant of it. It ate through everything that we put it into. You know, you, you normally put it into a lipopolysaccharide or something like E. coli, and it just ate through the shells. It's really toxic stuff. In fact, um, I just sent some, since that happened, that, and, and this is what is really cool about scientific research. From that point, Dr. Babcock, and then initially he had to write it. We wrote another paper saying 
we were wrong. It, do, it does not really reduce eight and nine. It decreases it and then corrects upon dilution with a leucosanic coagulant effect. So we um, then, you know, did some work with this. We, we found out we couldn't make a recombinant. And we also found out that it worked primarily with uh, PTT regions that had sphingomyelin in them. And this, the, uh, the brown recluse venom has a uh, anti-sphingomyelin HD property to it. It just literally, that, that's what happens when it gets on, like you get a bite on your hand or your arm, it starts eating the, the uh, myelin fibers up and it causes a real bad lesion uh, or what they call an eschar. And, uh, you know, then you can get, uh, uh, you know, get in the bloodstream, you have terrible infections that just literally rots the skin off. That's what happened to my friend, unfortunately, God rest his soul. Uh, and, um, but from that, that work, I was contacted by uh, uh, people at the um, at University of Missouri and uh, also uh, at um, um, Michigan State and a private doctor a clinic called uh, a company called Spider Tech, and also by a, a company in out in Arizona called Spider Farm, and they're in fact selling some of this stuff now. But Dr. Babcock and I went out and we caught 400 brown recluse spiders because the venom is very expensive. We used to buy it from a company called Sigma. I don't even know if they're still in business anymore, but it would like for five micrograms of 175 bucks. Well, how this has led to it. Yeah. And now, how did you catch them? Yeah. Um, we scooped them up in little uh, uh, plastic, uh, what we used to call coulter vials. You know, yeah. little vials you have in the plastic with a white snap uh, lid on them. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and then we took them back and we froze them. I guess uh, you had to wear some really heavy gloves. Uh, yeah, you made sure that you did. Yeah, the, yeah. the bite, you know, is really um, um, guys out in the field here. Uh, you know, like GIs and stuff. What they're mm -hmm. taught is to um, when you get up in the morning, tap your shoes and shake them out to make sure that the spiders haven't crawled in them at night. Yeah. Um, let me finish this one story, and I'll tell you how uh, uh, the brown recluse ended up in Iraq. Never <laughs> been there before. Um, but what did, what we uh, got from this is we did some other papers on, we developed a method for detecting uh, the uh, brown recluse bite because it looks like a number of things. It even okay. can look like a herpes or a shingle infection. Uh, you know, it, can, it, it looks like a MRSA bite. So what we did was we developed a swab technique and we also found that DNA swabs aren't good for it. The regular cotton swab causes less absorption and we were able to like if Robertson or Wisdom gets bit by a brown recluse, we can swab their hand, the, where the lesion is there, and we can pick up out to 21 days the uh, antibodies that uh, that bite makes. Yeah. And that is, is something that was really cool. Now that's been developed into a test kit. It went, uh, we've made it what they call laboratory developed test. And now we can tell within an hour whether someone's had a brown recluse bite and that can be in any emergency room and done by an ELISA method. Yeah. And we're actually working on a new color change method, much like a pregnancy test, you know, for mm -hmm. it. Uh, so, um, um, it, like I said, uh, that all started uh, from uh, uh, just a guy coming in saying, hey, I've got some funny stuff here. You want to take a look at it? You know, and we were able to uh, trace it all the way down. Now we're, uh, every hospital in the country can, uh, within an hour's check and see if that's really a brown recluse bite. 
because yeah. it can go very fast. Um, a good friend of mine um, actually was the first person ever treated for a brown recluse bite in Paris. He, works, he worked at the time for Diagnostic Estago. And when he was in St. Louis, he noticed that he had a small lesion on his finger. And he goes, wow, what the heck is that? I must have gotten bit by something. He got on a plane, went to France. By the time he got there, it was all the way up his arm, hmm. red streaks, and the lesion had gotten bigger. Yeah. And um, he was hospitalized uh, in Paris. And um, I know several of those guys. And uh, Jim was written up as the first uh, brown recluse envenomation ever in uh, France that they know of. Now, mm-hmm. through the military, during the Iraqi war, of course, we were shipping all kinds of, um, of uh, equipment and supplies and people uh, from Fort Hood and Fort Sam Houston here in Texas and other uh, Texas bases over to Iraq. My uh, commander at the time at the 59th Clinical Research Division, um, uh, went to, he went, Colonel Azy, he went to, a, he's an entomologist, you know, study of bugs and stuff. That that was his thing. And they sent him to Iraq because they said, we're either having really bad staph infections over here or something is here that's causing our troops to be bitten. And uh, Jim was able to uh, uh, isolate and find brown recluse in Iraq. They'd never been there before. But because we shipped stuff over from here, they were hiding in the equipment in dark places and stuff, and they wound up over there. So from Janine from Heparin to Brown Recluse Spider Venom, you know, uh, it, it's amazing how things all kind of get tied together. Yeah, everything comes together. My experiences with heparin back then with protein sulfate titrations then led to what we've got now, the anti-10A test, for monitoring heparin, both low molecular weight and unfractionated. Mm-hmm. And then I got into, we need to be able to find out what type of heparin we're uh, dealing with, or we don't have to worry about it. It's on the unit, you know, because uh, um, there was a, a lecture that someone gave here on uh, uh, a podcast on the network here uh, a few um, months ago. It talked about one of the problems that they had in the lab, they always had to call to find out what type of heparin it was on even if they were using uh, the hybrid curve that I developed that could um, um, test any of the heparins with the exception of uh, Fonda Paranox or Rixtra, because it's, it's kind of like a heparin, but it's not really, and it has a really low molecular weight to it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so then we've got a single hybrid curve now where if we get a uh, request for an anti-10A, we can just run it if it's a heparinoid. Actually, that anti-10A test also can be used for monitoring the direct oral anticoagulants if you have the calibrators for it, such as uh, Xarelto, Eliquis, which are Rivarexaban and Apixaban um, together. So, got any questions, guys? Uh, okay, I had a second question that you covered during our discussion. I just wanted to know, why do you think most uh, hospitals or probably most of the big hospitals would prefer to cover up such uh, medical errors that could also be murders in a way if investigated. Why do you think they would want to cover up such situations? Would it be a detriment to their reputation or? Oh, I, 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
I, 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 do, I don't understand why they do it. I would want to get to the bottom of it, but you know, you have to understand the personalities involved of uh, administrators and, and stuff. They don't want anything to come down bad that would reflect on the hospital, that would bring in investigations that might pick up something else. You yeah. know, uh, to me, yeah. uh, um, um, I would have welcomed, you know, something rather than having, you know, uh, more people, more children be harmed. I would want to know what was going on and get rid of that cancer. Yeah. And to me, I would turn that into a positive. I would say we saw a problem. We went after it and we shut it down before it became worse. I mean, exactly. there are things that happen in places. There are accidents. But, you know, that's why you've got uh, QA and QC people to pick up these things. You've got committees that study these type of things. You've got, um, well, you know, I mean, uh, if someone dies and there's not an explanation for it, most people, uh, they have what they call morbidity and mortality conferences, you know, committees yeah, to yeah. examine these things. And uh, at the time, the wrong people were in charge. In fact, it was very interesting. At the end of Janine's trial here in San Antonio, the DA, uh, called Mr. John Guest, who was now the administrator of the hospital. And he said, John, we just gave her 60 years. Now, I think you need to go to your staff and do uh, what a man's got to do. And everybody that covered her up, he asked for their letter of resignation and fired them on the spot. So yeah. they took care of that issue, but you know they waited too long. And, and let's face it, you still got to prove it. You know, you just yeah. can't make an accusation and stuff, but you got to prove it. And unfortunately, you had this maniac running amok on, on the, uh, uh, on the uh, unit, and you couldn't actually pin it down, but they should have listened to the people, you know, before it. I've had one other time in my career where I knew someone was faking uh, uh, results, doing what we used to call sync testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know whether you ever heard that term, you know, throw it in the sink instead of testing it and act like you did it. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, uh, we had to get proof. I was a supervisor on and man, they start coming after you. I told you what it was like during the trial yeah. and leading up to it, where they used people that I knew trying yeah. to get grand jury testimony and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you have to have, like I said, you've got to have proof of it. But, you know, they had people that, to me, had a mountain of evidence and they didn't they just looked, kept trying to look past the mountain on the other side rather than uh, taking care of the problem because they were worried about reflecting on them. Yeah. And, you know, a hospital administrator that has uh, a murderer working for them doesn't want that out. But you got to do it. To me, it's it says more to the integrity of the person that they face up to it, especially medical personnel. I mean, you've got to. I can honestly say, I don't think I, I, and in my heart and in my mind, I never turned out a number that I didn't think was the best number that I could give to a researcher or a clinician in order to give that person on the other end of that uh, specimen a good chance. Yeah. I, you know, if I did, it was an honest error, but I, in my heart, if I, if I ever saw something that said, this isn't right, I went back and repeated it. I figured out what was wrong and went from there. In fact, there is a something that I posted online. It's called Laboratorian's Creed. Um, in fact, I'll, uh, I've got a picture of it, uh, Robertson. I'll send it to you right after this is over. And you might want to post it. It was written by, when I first started in the, in the profession, there were not degree programs uh, in uh, the medical lab sciences. 
very few. Uh, there were um, hospital programs. There were technical schools and stuff. And I went to one a technical school that was a two-year program, one year of intensive study, and then one year internship. Uh, and this was before I drafted into the military, called Gradwall in St. Louis. And uh, Dr. R.B.H. Gradwall was the founder of the school, and he was also considered the first pathologist. He was uh, the person that developed um, um, uh, the test to show the difference, but a precipitin test to show the difference between animal and human blood. He also was uh, one of the first people that worked on uh, tests for syphilis, and he was related to uh, uh, his niece was uh, uh, the daughter of Wiener of Wiener Landsteiner ABO groups. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, some of our lecturers were uh, 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 Stanley Reitman and Sam Frankel are the guys who uh, discovered transaminase units. So it was a really a good school. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I was able to build on that. And then I went into the military and they said, oh, you're already a tech. Hey, you want to teach micro? Sure. You know, what's in it for me? And they go, well, a control tour for a year and a half. You won't have to go to Vietnam. I said, I'm in. <laughs> you know, so, as it was, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, looking back, I have some veterans guilt for not going there. I was in from 66 through 69, but I trained the people who I trained uh, um, Green Beret uh, field medics and Army lab techs and Army lab mm -hmm. officers in microbiology. And uh, um, when I got out, I, I, I got into a veterinary pharmacology research, went back to school, got my bachelor's. And while I was in school, I wound up being the lab supervisor where all of this occurred uh, uh, after I got my uh, bachelor's and master's degrees. So it worked out pretty good uh, as, as it is later on in my career. Um, I sent you my CV. I won't go into that, but uh, you can see I, I managed to build on those basic blocks yeah. turning a pretty good career. And, and I thought I made a difference. And Perfect. if I can mention, uh, my, I write a blog called Clock Club for Dia Pharma yeah. uh, Inc. And uh, it's got all kinds of topics uh, that you can look at. I've probably got about 20 different uh, um, articles in there, including the one on Janine and the overdose of the Wade twins that I think we discussed last time. Um, ways of uh, ridding uh, direct oral anticoagulants out of patient samples so they won't interfere with the coagulation testing, um, new ways of um, um, monitoring people who are on the new gene therapy type of uh, drugs for uh, uh, treating people with hemophilia, the new testing for that, and uh, even uh, things like factor 13 uh, issues, uh, Adams TS13, new ways of uh, monitoring von Willebrand's disease. So all that stuff's on there. You can yeah. just go on and pick and choose what you want. I you see. Know, so, yeah. yeah. Any other yeah, questions, guys? I'd certainly encourage everyone to go and check out the blog. Lots of interesting posts on there. Uh, and yes, the CV was pretty impressive. First time I saw a 28-page CV. I think it was 28 pages. If I can get half of that, I think I'm good. <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask, how did you get into MedLab? What was, the, was it your first choice? or? Um, actually, I probably, if I would have been a little bit happier with the situation. I might have wound up a uh, athletic coach and a history teacher. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, when I was a kid, I had some neighbors who had like 20 chemistry sets in their basement. 
And I love to go over there and do experiments of all kind. We, we actually almost blew up half their house one time. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we tried all kinds of things. And I kept begging my parents, you know, hey, for Christmas, give me a chemistry set. Oh, you'll just make a mess. And mm-hmm. I, I really love sports and stuff. And I thought uh, about playing, uh, trying to play uh, um, um, a low level of American football. And I, when I looked at it, I said, I played for fun. These guys, this is way too serious. If a guy got hurt on this team, they wouldn't even let you go to the hospital to visit him. You know, so I said, I need another option. And a friend of mine talked about the school. And when I heard about it, I thought, wow, this is something I wanted to do all my life. You know, anyway, so um, um, went to this school in St. Louis, Bradwall, and um, um, got really into it. Did a year's internship in a small town in Illinois that actually serviced about, again, about a 50-mile area around there where there were no other hospitals. I actually learned, uh, back then, we learned, we cross-trained in x-ray. We were the guys that did the EKGs uh, and something called basal metabolic rates, which have been uh, replaced by uh, thyroid function assays now. And uh, so I got a really good, you know, had to go up and draw all the blood, um, you know, uh, got to work as a generalist in everything. Uh, Micro was something that was one of my favorites in school, but um, hematology seemed to keep drawing me in. And um, I was uh, approached by a physician named Dr. Uh, Milka Montiel, who was the first woman who was ever a full professor at the University of Texas Medical School in San Antonio. She was Bulgarian, and uh, she broke out behind the Iron Curtain with her husband. She had seen me working, and she said, I am setting up this special coagulation lab. Would you like to come to work for me at the med school? And I go, I'm in. <laughs> med school paid number one. And uh, I had observed her. I liked her a lot because she came in and took over the blood bank and hematology. And she replaced four men who weren't doing that good of a job <laughs> and did a better job than any of them. And so that's how I kind of got into it. And then COAG for me was like, wow, this is this really cool puzzle. And you look for the, instead of trying to put it together, you look for the missing piece mm-hmm. that's causing the problem. And uh, um, I was encouraged there, and, and especially the clinical side that I got to see. And one thing that I found out in my position, you know, a lot of times laboratorians, the doctors come in and say, you're going to do this. I was in the position where, hey, man, how can you help me? Particularly when I worked for the military. Um, uh, it was, uh, these guys were like, we don't know what we're doing here. Hey, can you give us some advice? And, you know, uh, and, and with me, somebody asked me, he said, where do you get your research ideas? I said, the first one that I got was the, the best example I can tell you. I had these people calling me, Hey, I need a factor eight level done. And it was left in the refrigerator overnight, or it was left out. And, uh, can we still get a factor eight on? Well, I got to looking and the only information on storage of samples was for blood bankers. There wasn't anything for the coag lab, really. So we, uh, uh, I, you know, set up a small study where I, I ran things that were kept at room temperature at uh, two to eight degrees in a regular refrigerator, minus 20, minus 70. Mm-hmm. And we found that in a week's time, uh, five days time, you could lose 50% of your thermal label factors with um, uh, factor five and factor eight. At minus 70, everything stayed the same. You know, I mean, you didn't lose any activity. Um, so that, and and then, uh, um, 
my master's thesis was uh, came about was I was working with baboons that were, they were smoking baboons, and I was doing the coagulation, the platelet function on them and everything. And we also wanted to bring antithrombin uh, 3 at the time it was called. It's just called antithrombin, but some people still call it AT3s. Um, but um, we were trying to develop a technique, and it was a tilt tube at the time. And I was practicing with it and doing all kinds of things with the incubations and stuff. I ran out of human plasma. Uh, you know, and I so I started using my leftover baboon stuff, and I found out that baboons had decreased antithrombin threes, and it didn't make any sense because they never had thrombotic issues. Because uh, what later we found out is because their platelets aren't nearly as sticky as human. In fact, if you do platelet aggregations on them, epinephrine doesn't work, and their collagen lag phase is about 300 uh, uh, seconds versus uh, 25 to 60 in a human. So. All of these things just kind of led one thing into another. And some of the stuff I got were people came right to me, but a lot of the research that I've done was um, had this idea after seeing something and I wanted to go back and say, okay, let's take a look at this again and let's set it up. A lot of the stuff that I did was uh, method validations for um, uh, FDA approval, 510K work for companies. A company would come to us and say, hey, I've got this reagent instrument uh, uh, combination. What can I do to, you know, can you shake it down to see if there's any issues? And I found all kinds of things. One company, in fact, um, I said, you got a problem here. And they said, why is that? And I said, you're having a layering technique and it's causing a difference in the uh, uh, coagulation test that should be done. And what I found out was they had only used control plasmas instead of regular human plasmas and the viscosity of those treated control plasmas was so different that it wasn't causing a, uh, that it caused a different type of uh, effect. It layered, it, it mixed very well, but their other ones didn't mix at all. Um, one thing I found that it, one of the papers, I think wisdom that I sent you was, uh, you guys was the one on the chromogenic factor 10 assay for monitoring people on uh, Coumadin. Yeah. If you look at that, uh, in there, there is a curve that shows that an INR above four is totally inaccurate and should be uh, uh, reported out as such and repeated. And um, because what happens is the INR curve actually flattens out kind of like I, I, I equated to like a Nike swoop. And you might have a guy out here with a, a factor 10 level of 12 that is um, has an INR that might be in the therapeutic range of somebody who has an artificial heart valve of 2.5 to 3.5. And it also explained, um, there was one system that was out years ago, uh, MLA uh, had uh, instruments all over the place. And I found that, uh, again, their INRs were, uh, we, we were looking at uh, establishing a, helping the uh, pulmonologist establish a technique, a cryo technique for uh, doing pulmonary biopsies. Because they found, they saw that about two thirds of their patients were on Coumadin. And if you mess up with a lung taking a, a biopsy, you got a real problem. And so um, it, it was really cool. We were using Yucatan miniature swine as the model, and I was trying to get them to a two and a half to three and a half level in the therapeutic range. And all of a sudden, they would shoot to eight to 12 to 18 to 31, the INRs. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I went to a, 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 a instead of using a, um, a photo optic system, I went to a mechanical point system, and all of a sudden the INR started coming back normal. 
And this explained why some people who had this photo optic system goes, oh, this explains why we um, uh, give vitamin K to these people, and then they thrombose. It wasn't really that high, was it? No, it wasn't. And like I said, with that curve flattening out, it made the, uh, uh, at, at four, it made those INR levels after that suspect. So research never really finds an answer. It just leads to other questions, is what I like to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect place, I think, to wrap up. Uh, and top it up. Yeah. Hey, I mean, if, you, if, you, if anyone has any questions, tell them to get in touch with me, and I yeah. will be glad to answer them, especially in the COAG area. Mm -hmm. Like I said, my primary thing. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed this, enjoyed meeting you guys, stay in touch. I will send you that uh, picture of the Laboratory Creed. Yeah. How do they get in contact with you? Uh, they can get in contact with me uh, um, by my email. Right. Um, Dave, Dave at com is probably the easiest way. Okay. Um, if they're in the States, of course, they can, you know, get by a phone call. Uh, mm -hmm. And you got you got my numbers on the CV for that. But the yeah. easiest way would be a text or a, you could get uh, like you've been doing uh, uh, by Facebook Messenger. Yeah, something like Facebook, that. Facebook, LinkedIn. Right. Yeah. Any of those. Yeah, on all those. And I right. uh, appreciate you guys uh, uh, having me on. I've really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks so uh, Meeting everybody. And if there's anything else that I can help you with, man, don't hesitate to call, okay? No problem. No Thanks problem. a lot for coming on. I mean, we learned yeah, a lot, so. All right. Thanks. We'll catch you all later. All right. Have a good one. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right.